All right, so uh, before we get into this, um, have anybody, has anybody had an experience, uh, you know, I guess I'll say a bad experience that has um, affected you for future decisions? Uh, and we don't have to go like so deep on that. Um, so for instance, there is a restaurant that I don't know if I'll ever go to because my wife had a bad experience there. Um, which, you know, people all the time are like, hey, I went to this restaurant. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I haven't been um, because, I don't know, she had food poisoning or something. Um, so, any experiences like that? I'm sure you guys have In advance, so you guys can think. They're supposed to be like, yes, I will never. Car dealership? Okay, bad experience. I mean, you see them all the time. TikTok videos, like, have exploded. Not that I watch TikTok, but um, that's the weird thing with, like, now, like, my news feed has, like, TikTok references. I'm like, how did that become news, you know? Um, anyway, so. Yeah. Never had been open. And we couldn't find anything in the store that we needed. So I went to the manager and said, I'd like to get money. Well, we don't return money on gifts. And I said, well, your catalog says satisfaction guaranteed or money perhaps gratefully refunded. We don't do that. I said, well, that's what you said. So he did. And I said, Well, I was thinking, like, they're still, are they, they're out of business, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, Quinn, I mean, come on. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a, you know, some repressive emotions that you guys are holding back on, like, something. Um, there's a Thai, uh, what was it, uh, a Vietnamese restaurant, Pho, which was, like, in Town Lake. Um, so we don't need to name names, but anyway, uh, it had just come out and Sarah was excited and we went and I had a good experience and Sarah was like, I think I got food poisoning. I think she was just sick, but she's not here to defend herself. But, um, it was like, I think I got food poisoning. And I was like, I don't think you got food poisoning, but we'll never go back there again. Um, yeah. Yeah. True, true. I mean, when I, when I first moved to Alabama, I was in Ohio, and I was in the mail, and it was a bill in the mailbox, and that was like, freaked me out a little bit. To be honest with you. What happened? There was a bill. Bills. Bills. If you bill the bills, first time I got a bill in the mailbox. Oh, so you just were like, I'm not paying. I, I refuse. I, I have never. <laughs> You see the mailbox as a flashback experience. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> How dare they? Bad experience. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes we're we're scarred by certain things, you know, and they they come up and they they come to mind, and so um, how we view something, right, is based on <clears throat> the experience that we've had. Now you can have positive ones, but no one likes to talk about positive experiences, right? You know, I feel it's easier to come up with the negative ones, but we'll we're gonna we're gonna talk about that um, in in what we're gonna talk about today, and even in our our understanding of what we're going to talk about today. Um, so last week we looked at Second Thessalonians chapter two, and uh, again Paul's talking about what the end, um, the day of the Lord, kind of <clears throat> end times events, future history. Um, as he's talking to the Thessalonians, that there are certain things that are going to happen that they that will be unmistakable. 
And because of these unmistakable events, um, there's kind of a response to those things. One is that, you know, we must live expectantly uh, on the Lord's return, but also uh, live diligently in how we behave, not only spiritually, morally, and that, those aspects, but even within our work habits and, and how we uh, live day to day. And so he addressed that when he actually, you know, addressed an issue that was going on in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And so a correct understanding of, of the future helps us in our present living. Um, and so when we looked at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I didn't go into a whole lot of, I mean, I went to a fair amount of detail, but there was a whole lot of things that I brought up that I didn't kind of carry us off onto to different tangents, but I had mentioned that there are viewpoints to how we understand Scripture and that there are different ways that people can look at Scripture um, and that there's a myriad of ways that people can, can, can go into that. And so today's lesson in Revelation chapter 20 uh, really doesn't get any thornier um, in how we understand what certain uh, views are. Um, and so when we talk about eschatology or end times, uh, a lot of different positions are named after like what people believe about the events that happen in chapter 20. And so over the next couple weeks, you know, I want us to kind of understand kind of broadly what that looks like and, and how we can, can understand that. And our whole books have been devoted to the subject, um, and Tim was just telling me a dissertation, uh, I don't know how many pages that dissertation was, what, at least 100 pages probably, on one verse of Revelation 20, which I'm sure covered more than just that. But, you know, we're not going to get that detailed. But I wanted to just kind of step back and kind of first talk about, like, what it, what it looks like in understanding interpretation of Scripture. Because when we go over, and I don't go over, like, well, the way that I interpreted this Scripture was, and then go over that, for the most part, most of scripture that we've gone over, like all, most of the chapters that we've gone over, we're going to have lots of agreement within those that we would say uh, are uh, hold to Orthodox Christianity, meaning like the basic tenets of Christianity that we will see these people in heaven. And so there are, though, variations within those that we'll see each other in heaven and be like, aha, you know, you were right, or I was right, or, you know, you know one of those things. I don't know. We won't, we won't say that necessarily because we'll be too busy worshiping Christ. But how we understand scripture is kind of gone, going into this idea of what's called hermeneutics. It's like the science of interpreting scripture. And there's kind of four basics. This is why I have the big screen. There's a few things that I want to like point out and there's some complexity. So there's kind of four different ways. That it's, you know, if you go to a seminary class, like how, how they might explain different ways of people interpreting scripture. And so this is really for any text um, at all, is when you interpret something, one is literal. So when you read it, you're taking it at face value. And we'll talk about what that looks like um, a little bit more deeply in just a second. But so there's kind of a literal, literal interpretation. What does the text say and what does it mean as it has been written? So the plain meaning of scripture. Then you kind of get like into a few other views, which have more of a spiritual sense. Uh, we would say we are not only physical, but also spiritual people. And, but some would say in understanding Scripture, that the Scripture is actually written for only our spiritual side. So any of the physical things you might read have like a deeper spiritual overtone. We would say there are some spiritual implications for what we read in Scripture. That's a huge part of what we read. But, and I'll give you some examples in just a second. So one would be allegorical. And so um, the allegorical is like there is a uh, secondary meaning behind everything in Scripture. And so if you read, um, say you read about Daniel, you don't, might not have to agree that Daniel, you, would, you wouldn't necessarily say that um, I believe Daniel was a historical person. Whereas in the literal sense, you would say Daniel is a historical person. Like he actually lived, he was a person, and he, the events that we read about happened. The allegorical mean, well, what are, what are the, um, what's a deeper meaning about who Daniel was and how does God want us to understand how we should behave um, through the types of things that Daniel did? Did he actually go into a lion's den or does the lion's den have a bigger meaning? And the allegorical could actually mean the lion's den, well, when it was written at a particular period in time, actually referenced like, you know, this other aspect of, you know, this historical figure that was happening at the time. Anyway, um, the moral, 
I, I don't want to hammer the head, but I was like, you know, I, I gave the example of, you know, is Obama the Antichrist? You know, right? Like reading into like the Antichrist is like something, the deeper level. Now, is there a possible hidden meaning that, you know, well, maybe time will tell, but that shouldn't be where we first go in our understanding of scripture, that that's an allegorical understanding. The moral is, you know, what is the ethical meaning behind each text? And so as you read, you know, the things that happen, if, you know, say Jesus and the loaves, um, you know, the multiplying the loaves and the fishes, some would say, well, that actually didn't happen. What people actually did is they pulled out their own, loaves and fishes because they, they, they didn't want to like share with everybody but when they saw this boy give his loaves and fishes then everybody else like gave their loaves and fishes and that's how you know everybody was able to share with one another and have enough so did Jesus have like extra you know baskets full well we would say literal yeah I mean that's what the text says the moral is like no it's more about sharing and being kind to one another and, and that kind of idea and then there's this idea of the anagogical. And the anagogical almost comes with like this idea of like numerology or mystical understanding of prophecies. And so there's certain numbers and the certain numbers mean something. And if you had this kind of maybe hidden understanding, you would understand it a little bit more. And so um, different groups at different times in history have had a deeper, you know, um, uh, affinity to some of these types of interpretation. So that's kind of like big, broad, like how, you know, one might interpret. And so how would we, how would we apply it? So the literal is the city of Jerusalem. When you read Jerusalem, it's the city of Judah, like the actual capital. Okay. Um, the tropological or moral reference is Jerusalem is the human soul. Like that's kind of like the meaning behind it. It's a city, but it's like, you know, all of us and, and, you know, um, our, inner being. The allegorical is Jerusalem is the church. And so when you ever read Jerusalem, Jerusalem actually is reference to the church. And then the anagogical is Jerusalem is the heavenly city. Now in different places in scripture, we have like these ideas applied in different ways, but are they always applied in that way? And so how do we understand that? But you can kind of see like the different levels and maybe how you could apply a particular point of scripture. So again, much more to be said about that. Um, I don't know, years back, I guess probably 10, probably 10 ish years ago, I taught a course on, um, hermeneutics and we spent, I don't know, like 10 weeks talking about how do you interpret scripture? Uh, this isn't from me. I ripped this off from somebody, but it was good. in um, just saying like, when we go through scripture, uh, you know, how do we, how do we interpret from a literal standpoint? And so we look at the history of when something was in the context of when something's being written. I always refer to some of those things, you know, not always, but generally like, hey, Paul's writing the second Thessalonians. What was going on during that time? Um, it could be historically or in their history, what's, what's happening at that time. Cultural, what are the cultural implications? How do, how do there's certain meanings? Um, and, you know, how would that, culture applies something in a particular context where understanding some of those things allow us to have a deeper understanding of scripture geographical you know is it coastal is it in the mountains is it desert you know those things uh grammatical so grammatical is huge like what do the words mean so often i talk about what a word means because there's nuances that you get in the greek and the hebrew um, that sometimes we don't see in our english translation uh, literal, so applying something literal when it's literal, applying something figurative when it's figurative. Um, we'll see those examples in our text today. Uh, so I'll kind of point out some of those things. Um, also, in light of other scriptures, if something's confusing in one passage or you know could be taken one way, well, how is it fleshed out in other places in scripture? Uh, so we've kind of done that a little bit when we're looking at Second Thessalonians, Revelation 20. Jesus says some things. Paul says some things. So how do they shed light onto John and what he's saying or writing down? And then in light of God's character, um, you might read something and say, was well, this consistent with who God is? Um, and then kind of apply it in, in that sense. So that's kind of from the, the literal aspect. Now, um, again, if you say, well, if everyone's applying Scripture in the same hermeneutic, wouldn't you come to the same conclusion? One would think, right? Uh, and it's funny, when I was uh, taking, 
you know, I was starting to get my master's, but then ended up leaving that program uh, after seminary. Uh, there was a theological class that I had to take, and it was looking at some specific denomination strand of belief in um, just their belief in a whole bunch of different areas. And it's interesting, when I was reading their books, it was like, well, if you just look at Scripture, or <laughs> Scripture says, and so they're always coming from the standpoint that their approach is most biblical. I would say, like, my approach is most biblical. So how do we come and land at different spots? If we're all coming from a biblical approach with the same hermeneutic, you might say, well, their hermeneutic isn't, you know, favors one thing over another. But I would say there are things that, experience, that color our experience. Just kind of like I said, there are certain experiences that you've had in life that color um, how you look at certain companies, certain people, certain things. And one of those has to do with the issue of Israel, which sounds kind of like an odd place to like start, you know. If say like, well, how do we, you know, why is Israel kind of a focal point? And so I'll explain this in just a second. There's actually, I mean, there's a whole host of views, but one of the things is, is um, who is the, who's the main focus in the Old Testament as far as like the people of God? What's that? Abraham, but then, I mean, I already kind of said it. So David, and more broadly, Israel, or you could say the Jews, right? When it gets to the New Testament, who's the main focal point? Let's think of, like, mostly the epistles are written to the church, right? And you have the Gospels, which is kind of like, well, somewhere kind of in the intermediary between, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, so as we see the focus shift from Israel to the church, what does that mean? The promises that were made to Israel, are those promises still valid for Israel? Or now, have those promises been shifted and applied to the church? That's a huge question. (laughs) And so where you land on that, that, that topic, that question, I really feel is like what kind of pushes you or skews you in a particular direction. Um, You may not know it, but that kind of, you know, helps like you understand where you may land in a particular, in a few different areas. <clears throat> so I'm just going to go over a few of these and kind of just talk about what, what this looks like. So the traditional dispensational view is that followers, and this, so this, um, this is coming from a review on the book, Four Views of Israel. And so I'll just read it as you're going to kind of listen to it. So the followers of this school believe that God deals with human beings differently in different dispensations, meaning God kind of like, works through different eras and different groups um, as history kind of unveils itself. So you may even just, as you said, was like through Abraham and then through uh, Abraham's family and then through Israel. And then, you know, what does that look like? And so there's different dispensations. I won't look at that. Um, But the promises of God to Old Testament Israel will be literally fulfilled. Israel and the church are distinct. Furthermore, the Jews today are Israel, and interpreters should read the Old Testament literally without bringing into it the meaning of the New Testament. In other words, the Jewish people today are the recipients of the Old Testament promises, including the land promises. In this perspective, the age of the church will be over at the rapture. The Jewish people will go through the tribulation, believe in Christ, and then they will experience fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies in the millennium. Talk about that today. So that's the traditional dispensation view. There's the, then the covenant theology, or at least the traditional covenantal theology, and that believes in three covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption is between members of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. The covenant of works is between God and our first human parents before their fall into sin. And the covenant of grace is seen after their fall, as well as throughout the Bible, starting from Genesis 3.15. The church is spiritual Israel. The sacrifice is Jesus Christ. The priesthood is for all believers. The temple is the hearts of believers. And the promised land is the kingdom of God. In other words, there is no future role for the Jews. And all Old Testament expectations are fulfilled in the church. Okay? So you got two different views there, right? That one is that there is still an expectation for the Jews that was promises in the Old Testament will be fulfilled for the Jews. 
covenantal theology says that the promises for the Jews are now applied to the church. And so those promises aren't necessarily null and void. They're now just being taken over by different recipients. And again, dissertations, papers, all of that, books have been written of like why that's right or why that's wrong. I'm just kind of introducing you to these, these, uh, these ideas. And then there's a few others. Uh, progressive dispensational view. Um, and I would just say there's just kind of variations of what those look like. And then there's even a progressive covenantal view. So those, I would say, the largely like kind of two big broad strokes are Old Testament promises to Israel will be fulfilled in the millennium or the promises to Israel will be fulfilled in the church age. There is no millennium. And then there's kind of a mix, even covenantal of like, well, some of it is in the church age and some of it is in the millennium and kind of a mixture of, of those ideas, how they're fleshed out. We could go ad nauseum because even within those, some people are like, well, I believe most of this, but there's a couple things in that that, you know, I, I pick up on. Just think of your own political views, right, that you differ from other people in how every single viewpoint that you have has a variety. Although largely you can agree in large camps like, yeah, I agree with most of what you say, but there are a few strands that I don't. So, do you have any questions that I'm talking about? Uh, the covenant theology, is that uh, the basis in uh, denominations? Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, You do find different denominations largely holding to different views. So, you would, you would largely hold dispensationalism within Baptist churches, and then you'd find covenantal is usually in... Yeah, well, you could say specific denominations, but more some more of the other Reformed. And then you have, like, some Reformed Baptists, which, do we still say we align kind of that way? I mean, I know, like, when you start saying, like, well, we're kind of this, then it's like, well, different groups that are largely adopt certain things, it's like, well, we're not like that. So well, you sometimes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would say Baptist because we believe in full immersion, believers' baptism, but different than certain other Baptists, how they carry things out, but not like baptism for children. And so you get into a whole lot of nuances. And even how this uh, plays out um, within the context of a church service and even with, yeah, just saying there, like baptism, your beliefs on baptism are going to be different based on this. So it colors a whole lot of other things, not just like how you view the future, how you view like, you know, the millennium. But I wanted to just kind of like share that because sometimes like if you're with your, your, um, inside of a framework and how do you get outside of that framework to truly understand, like you just, we all, we all would say we want to be most biblical. I mean, I don't think any of you here is like, well, I don't want to be biblical and end my understanding um, of Scripture. I'm going to be careful not to make certain uh, accusations because I've landed on like what I believe, but I have like friends that believe different things, and I understand why where they believe, but I'm like I'm not there. And I know that hugely that is colored. I mean, I would say like it's probably not a focal point, but I know. Just in seminary, going through, I had no views going into seminary. It was like, I don't know. I've never thought about any of this. I guess it was all future. I don't know. You know, until someone like mentioned something, you're like, I've never heard that before. That makes a lot of sense. And then um, just going through Hebrew uh, and starting with the Old Testament in seminary, like, I know I have a strong connection with Israel and the promises made to Israel. So I know, like, that's where a weight is, like, on me, even though, like, I had no, you know, no no understanding of even any of these promises made to Israel. That's, like, largely the promises I see made to Israel affect how I see things going on in the future. Although I'm able to understand different viewpoints, and sometimes even reading scripture, I'm like, yeah, that one seems to sit a little bit better. But how do you, how does all of scripture fit? And we'll talk about that in just a second. So. Kind of to illustrate some of these things, we're going to take a step back. All right. If you've seen this, don't say it, okay? Have anyone seen this? Uh, okay, so what do you guys see? What's that? I see stone. You see a stone, okay? Okay, it's a brick wall or walkway. Okay. Does anyone see anything in the brick wall or walkway? I heard a stone. 
Anything else? A rock. A rock, okay. All right, so I don't think anyone's seen this before. Has anyone seen this before? Okay. What? Joints. Joints within the... Okay. All right, I'm going to show this to you. All right. So do you see right here is a cigar sticking out. So you got the ash of the cigar, and you've got the cigar right here sticking out of the wall. Three-dimensional. Okay. All right, now close your eyes and open them again. Okay. Can you not see the cigar? Okay. Can you not see the cigar? Like, I saw this five years ago. I even had to ask my wife, like, do you not see the cigar? Or, like, or I just said, what do you see? And she said the same thing. I see a stone. I'm like, okay, good. Because five years ago, I stared at this thing. I'm like, I don't see what they're, you know, whatever it is. Because it was like, can you see this hidden object? And I stared at it for like 10 minutes. But then, even like years later, I cannot not see that cigar. Okay? So, you've been ruined. All right? <laughs> so, all right. Now. Sometimes when we look at scripture, right, there are things that we can't like not see when we come to scripture, right? We have like things that like we are bringing into the text and that we understand is like, this is like what I was taught. This is what I believe. I can't like unsee that. And no matter what you do, it's like, I can't unsee that. Now, interpreting scripture isn't quite that way, but sometimes it's like, I don't see it. What's that? <laughs> and if you hadn't seen it yet, we'll, we'll come back. All right. Okay. Which way is the cat walking? <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. And so I was like, you know, so do you see this cat going up the stairs or down the stairs? So <laughs> the way the tail is, has to go up. Now, you could probably, in this one, there's different things that you could do. You could probably flip and be like, I see it going up and like, okay, I see it going down. Like coming down at me from like a cellar. Or going up, you know, I guess from the basement or whatever. So, uh, so could you see both both ways? Okay, right. So sometimes, right, we can read scripture and we can be like, okay, I see where you're at. You know, I I I still think it's going down, or I still think it's going up. You know, but there are certain things like you can see both viewpoints without getting so invested. It's it's not like it's one way you can't see another. All right, so so there's that, and then. I feel like there's some text. So, does anyone see it moving? Okay. <laughs> that one came out big. It's like big and crazy. All right. So, and then there's some text where you're like, I think it's still, wait, it looks like it's moving. Is this text moving on me? Like, you know, and like your interpretation of things are kind of like, I don't know, I could go one way. It depends on the day and the morning of like how I feel. And it's not like, when I'm saying interpreting, I'm not saying like it fully like you are a believer, you're not a believer. It's like, does that thing, you know, does that interpretation like I could see it that way? And you're like, no, I don't I don't see it that way. And so um, some are more innocuous than others. OK, so we're going to dive into our study. Because, but I want us to kind of like have that in the back of our mind is that sometimes, right, some things you see clearly, you can't unsee it. Right. Some things. So, yeah. <laughs> I have, there's a there's a link to a whole bunch of them. There's like some that you stare at, and then it goes like white, and then you still see the colors, you know. Um, so anyway, <laughs> sorry with that last one. Um, you can close your eyes if you want to. So we're gonna we're gonna get uh, as far as we're gonna get, um, not too far, but I figured we would do a couple weeks. But I really wanted to kind of have like a, a precursory like thought on what what this chapter looks like. So we're gonna read, um, and we're not gonna cover all the verses because really. The key issues that we're going to look at are only in the first 10 verses. And so when we get to um, our last, our number 50, we're going to do the end of Revelation and afterwards. Um, So we're going to read those first 10 verses just kind of as a whole and kind of think. And I've like underlined a few things that are kind of like key repetitive things that that, that come up. So chapter 20, verse 1 of Revelation Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So kind of key questions as you read this, right, um, is there's a thousand years that's mentioned numerous times. I've underlined that. So what is this thousand years referred to? And when is this thousand years happening? That's like kind of a critical question uh, in answering you know, this, this, in understanding this passage. But other things we see is that Satan is bound during this time. So what does that mean? That Satan is, is bound. People will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So who are they? What does that look like? Uh, what is this final battle that's talked about? And what is this lake of fire and sulfur? You know, there's kind of like big questions. Some are easier to answer than others. Um, some of the last ones I said are like, oh, that's it. And now the interpretive challenge for this is, right, if we're going to come with like a literal interpretation, is how literal do we take this? Well, there are certain things that should be taken figuratively, and so how figurative do we see this? And so what's the balance between literal and figurative? Is it like 50-50? Is it, you know, but that's not really the quite, quite the answer. It's how do we gain the best understanding from the scripture that we look at? And so before we dive in, when it comes to the millennium, right, there's four main views. I'm not going to go too deep into them, but just so you know, and you probably heard of some of these, I wasn't sure how this was going to come up, but there's four basic ones. There's two flavors of what's called premillennialism. So a thousand years is a millennium. And so the thousand years is the millennium. So what do we do with this thousand years and how do we understand it? And so there are four kind of major groups that, you know, and there's, again, different variations within. But one is this historical premillennialism, this idea that there's this church age, there's a great tribulation, which we've talked about through Second Thessalonians. Christ comes, there is a millennium for a thousand years, and then everyone is, you know, there's the eternal age. And we'll, we'll talk about that um, next, next uh, number 50. Now you've got this idea of dispensational premillennialism. I've already like talked about what dispensationalism is as far as like this understanding of Israel, but as God does different dispensations, you have the church. We've talked about like the rapture and kind of that idea. And I said, there's different viewpoints on the rapture. And so there are even within dispensationalism, usually it's a pre or mid tribulation um, that the church is raptured that everyone else goes through tribulation, Christ comes, there's a thousand years, and final judgment, and then eternity. Um, you can't really, it's, it's hard to tell, but in this arrow here, it says like humanity is trending towards either good or evil. Like things are getting better or worse over time. And so here it's things are going towards evil, like things will get worse, and then Christ comes. Same thing here, things will get worse, and then Christ comes. For amillennialism, there's a little bit different viewpoints, but most would say things get worse and then Christ comes. But the church age is going through the tribulation right now. Like currently right now, we are in the millennium. And so the thousand years that is talked about, that John talked about, saw it as future, but uh, we are experiencing it presently. And this thousand years is not in the literal thousand years, it's a... A thousand years, a round number for a long time until Christ comes. And then Christ will return. So in this tribulation, there will even, you know, may even be a man of lawlessness. Some would say the man of lawlessness has already come. It's kind of a, uh, 
smaller strand of, of what people believe, but a lot believe that there is a future man of lawlessness that will come before Christ returns, and so the tribulation will grow, and so certain events will be seen more clearly. And then you have this idea of post-millennialism. So this idea, um, post-millennialism, is you have the church age, but here, that things actually like improve over time. And as things improve based on the church's influence within the culture, that the kingdom of God grows to a point where like now like the church has had such an influence, right? The church with the Holy Spirit's acting within, within the culture, that then Christ will come and reign. And so it kind of like gets to a, uh, the millennium, like in the things that are talked about in the Old Testament about the millennium. Um, and we'll get to those a little bit more next week. Uh, like usher in Christ returning. It's like now it's prepared for Christ to return. So I would say those that are probably certain strands of um, Presbyterian might fall in postmillennialism. You can read different views and culture, you know, like when popularity things were uh, greater or not. A lot of Reformed, just general, some Presbyterian, but some other are in that camp. And then again, you have more like, Baptist, but then even some Reformed uh, kind of swaying that way direction. But again, some of it has to do with how all these things are interpreted. And a whole lot of details, a whole lot of other like subpoints. but that's kind of the big overarching like thoughts on what the millennium is. And then, I don't know, maybe we'll go over that next time, because um, it's just kind of like specific details on what this looks like. So I fall into a premillennialism camp. Right, and so this is kind of like how I would teach it, and I also think from a teaching in a John sense, he saw it as a future um, perspective, and so that's kind of a safe way to teach it as well. Even when I'm teaching like high school students or things that like you might come from different denominations, um, still teaching it as future is kind of a you know a safe way to go, but. There are those that would say, well, certain events that are talked about have already happened. But for the most part, a lot of things that are still going to happen here in Revelation chapter 20 are still yet to be future, even for most of the um, views here. Okay, so let's get into chapter 20 and get a few verses in, and then we'll see how far we get. So chapter 20, verse 1 You read, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Okay, so what's the context? What just happened? Now, we read chapter 19 uh, before, um, but let me read it again. Let's just start in verse 11. We've already seen like the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread their winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So it's after that the angel was seen coming down from heaven. Now why is John shown these, you know, these images, right? All of Revelation, when we get to the end of Revelation, you know, John is told to write these things down. Writing these down for the churches and for those 
who hear to be ready for Christ, because you get the refrain that said at the end of Revelation 22 that Christ's coming is near. So it's a preparation for the things that Christ you know, is going to do. And so they're written for the church to understand these things. Um, Paul, right, when he was writing, wanted... You know, one of his people, specifically when we looked at the Thessalonians, right, wanted them to understand and know and be ready without knowing exactly when Christ was going to return. Jesus echoes some of those things, and we won't look at it today. We may look at it a little bit later, but Matthew 24, we looked at some verses of Jesus talking about things that will happen in this time of tribulation. But then afterwards, you know, not like kind of connected, that's in Matthew 24. In Matthew 25, he starts talking about these different parables. And one of the parables is the parables of the ten virgins, right? That they all must be ready with their lamps. And some had oil on hand. They all had lamps, but some had oil on hand. Half of them did. The other half, you know, waited until the bridegroom came. When the bridegroom came, they're like, hey, can you share your oil with me? And they're like, it doesn't work that way. We won't have enough. And so it's kind of this thing about being prepared, being ready, being diligent for the return of the bridegroom, return of Christ. And so John isn't saying anything much differently. Like, I want you to be ready. I want you to understand. And here's like some of the things that are going to happen, right? But we see that Christ is victorious and that some things at the end of Revelation 19... That Christ, who's described as the one from heaven with all authority and power, he will strike down and rule. Um, We see that ruling them with a rod of iron, bringing God's wrath against the beast and the nations to be slain by his word and then fed upon by all the birds of the earth. It's kind of interesting that there's this like supper of the birds of the earth kind of contrasted at the end with the beginning of chapter 9 with this marriage supper of the Lamb with all of the saints in heaven. And so, um, again, that's kind of like what, what colors at least John's writing into when you get to chapter 20. So he sees an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Let's have it. Where's that text? Okay. So, uh, first question, right? You got this uh, bottomless pit. So what is the bottomless pit? The bottomless pit is a Greek word, uh, abusos, or we can, we can translate it as an abyss. Um, actually, the word ah, whenever you see that word ah, so um, if someone is a theist, they believe in theos, a god, and atheist is without or not god, so they don't believe in god. They are not a theist. The amillennial, you know, some even like brush up against that idea of being amillennial, meaning there is a millennium. A millennial would say there isn't a millennium, but a millennium is uh, would say that they're actually we're living in the millennium. So it's not that there isn't a millennium; it's a realized millennium is how they would say. What's that? Well, and it's also not a literal thousand, but yeah, it, but uh, yeah, but the description of a millennium, like they still believe things are happening. It's just they're happening now. Like we're in the millennium, the millennium. We'll say millennium in quotes, not literal millennium. Um, so when you see the abusos or buthos is actually depth, a depth. So without depth is this word for this pit. But it would really mean like a deep chasm. So when you kind of think that, you know, if there is no depth, does that mean that there is no bottom and that it would just like, you know, Satan would be thrown in there and like falling forever and ever and ever? No. But the idea of how they would understand that is that there is this large chasm. If I could see the bottom of something, this abyss or this chasm is like, I can't see the bottom. It's down there somewhere, but it goes down forever. And that's just kind of the idea. But where have we seen this word before? In the Gospels, it's only written in one place. And Jesus mentions it in Luke 8.30. And so... Jesus, I'll just read the, the verses in, in, in Luke 8.30, 30, 
Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they, the demons, had begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Okay, so the demons were like, we don't want to go into this abyss that is described. And he's like, we'd rather go into pigs that cast themselves off a cliff than go into this thing that Jesus had described as an abyss. More so, we see this abyss, or now, now uh, translated as bottomless pit, several places in Revelation. The first time we see it is Revelation 9.1, where we read, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a key of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So we have this like abyss that there's a key that opens it up, and when it opens it up, these locusts who've been given great power, many would think that's kind of demons or some sort of you know evil power, you know, leaders or demons, again, that were given power to do what they're going to do on the earth. A few verses later, in in verse 11 in chapter 9, those locusts have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. So that means destroyer in both languages. So whether that's describing Satan himself or some sort of leadership under Satan, you know, a captain of the locusts, of something like that. We see that, but he comes from the bottomless pit that has now been opened up. So it's a place that we see that the demons don't want to go to, that there is some sort of uh, lock, <laughs> whatever that looks like, um, that keeps them where they're at until a time that it's opened up and let out. And so that's kind of what we've seen so far in Scripture. In Revelation eleven six. They, the two prophets, have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So that beast that we talked about last week um, has its authority, but it rises from the bottomless pit. That's where it's now that's been opened, and that's where it comes from. So seems to be a place where demons are sent and where they're restrained. So in here, right, we see that, um, you know, that this angel coming down has a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And so this is where Satan is going to go. So what did the angel do with the chain? What does it say in the text? Okay, so bound Satan, and for how long? Okay, so bound Satan with it for a thousand years. So again, how literal do you take things? How figurative do you take things? So Satan, as a demon, as an angel, a fallen angel, is a spiritual being. So what does that mean for a chain to, like, bound? Is that, like, for John to understand, like, visually what's happening? Or is that something like there is some sort of like spiritual chain that is used? So again, things like how we can interpret some of those things, you know, we don't understand, but we understand like the gist of what John's getting at, right? That there is like bound with a chain means locked up, means imprisoned, means like held captive. So Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse 6 um, Jude and 2 Peter says something similar. But the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay? And so here you read about, again, like, you know, again, these fallen angels being restrained by chains um, that is described from other people other than John. Okay, so what do we see there? What is the purpose of throwing him there? Not to see the nations 
Okay. So, right. So, he may not deceive the nations any longer. So, then a question comes up. Okay. Well, if that's kind of a future time that he will be bound so he can't deceive the nations any longer, then we look sometimes present day and say, well, is he currently deceiving the nations now? And so, we then, like, sometimes looking at, like, events that happen in the future then prompt us to think, well, how do we... How do we understand events that are happening now? And what is Satan's activity currently? And what does that look like? And so... Um, Mm-hmm. Whether he's accusing or doing whatever is all built on the deception. And I heard one uh, speaker say that if he's bound now, as some would say, in this figurative sense, that he's bound, there's one long chain that he's bound by. Because he is actively pursuing and deceiving the nations now. Yeah. And I don't think anybody could deny that. And I think it's things that you would say that, well, he's going to be bound in the future, but this bound binding seems different than. You know, there, we don't see a binding of Satan currently, or even as Jesus would describe it. And even when we looked at Second Thessalonians, we talked about the idea that what's what's happening with Satan currently, at least up until the man of lawlessness is revealed, that there is a what happening. We say it's going to be removed at, when the man of lawlessness. What's that? Yeah, so there's this restraint that's happening on Satan. And so we talked about that a little bit. So what is Satan actively doing, right? He is an accuser. Um, He's able to be in heaven. But then at some point, we looked at Revelation, that at some point he's cast out of heaven. His focus will be on the earth, right? And he will be more actively deceiving the nations. Like, it's, it's just a different, I guess... Quality, but then you start, you know, like looking at a couple verses here, then prompts you to start thinking like it. It helps in our sharpening our theology. Now, again, some of it is as you start kind of answering one question and answering another question, you get further away from the text. So sometimes it's helpful for us to have a again a proper like worldview for things to like make sense for us. Um, But then we start drifting in areas that. Uh, we start making concrete statements that are a little bit outside of Scripture. So the things we want to try to like say is like, well, what do we understand that we know? And what are the things that like we are presuming based on the things that we know from Scripture? And then how do we like put it all together so it makes sense? And again, from my viewpoint, from, from looking at this as like happening in the future, it makes sense to me. Somebody else will look at it and say, well, some of these events are happening now, and they can go to other scripture and, and might emphasize or highlight other scripture to, like make, to prove their point. And so, again, things that we want to kind of like uh, be gracious about and humble about, that certain things we don't know for sure, but then there are things that we feel pretty confident about, and there are other things that we're just speculating on, and so we need to let those things rest. But at least looking from a future standpoint, again, we're going to stop here just because we hit, we've hit our time. But something's happening at this time in the future, right, that Satan will be limited his power for a thousand years, or a thousand years if you want to say it in quotes, and then released for a brief time. So we won't get to the, all the implications of what that looks like, but we'll do that at least uh, next time a little bit more. Um, but I'm going to pause there. I hesitate to ask. Were there any uh, questions or thoughts uh, as we as we end this section? Um, and so, yes, Neil. Just a quick one. So that that word nations. Yes.
Um, I don't know. I can look at. I don't have an answer to my question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, we can look at it more next time. Um, yeah, and generally it is like the nations of the earth, and typically most of those, right, would be Gentile nations, and so outside of outside of Israel. So. Mm-hmm. That when these angels left their position and did something they shouldn't have, then they were chained. Peter talks about that, pit of darkness and that. So in this case, the, the devil was thrown down, and after the tribulation, he's been chained to the to the abyss. Seems like it happened before, and it's going to happen again. I believe with the devil. Yeah. Right, right. Good question. I honestly have not thought about that one, but you're like, yeah, you know, so it gets brought up and you're like, so then what does that look like? Okay. Yes. Bigger question. Bigger question. You know, they picked what's going to be in and what's not going to be in the Bible. So there were books that weren't there. Yes. Why in the world did they pick this book? It's completely different from Old Testament, New Testament. It's just wildly different. Because uh, they confidently felt that John wrote it, right? And so because of John and who he was as a disciple of Christ and as a leader among that, that his the revelation that he was given was deemed worthy, right? That it was looked at as authoritative and from the Spirit, you know. <laughs> they were doing something. So. so he uses them for report. I mean, looking over, if you read Daniel, obviously they corrupted man. If you read Psalm uh, 82, he says, You corrupted man, but you're going to die like men. And so there's something there that angels does that it, it shouldn't have done. Some of the angels, I think maybe there's a certain angel that did something. It talks about that the angel will come down on earth. Yeah. Yeah, no, a lot, a lot of other th- threads and strands that we can go to. So, Drew, one more comment that was very helpful to me in understanding or trying to grasp hermeneutics, mm-hmm. science of interpretation, to simplify what we would understand is to go to the authorial intent, to get into the mind of the writer. We understand that no interpretation is left to, unto a single man, but it's the Holy Spirit intended through men. Mm-hmm. And yet these men and their faculties understood what they were writing and who they were writing to and that's our goal what was what were these men saying what did they understand and what were the readers hearing as well so to to take the, the promises of Isaiah regarding the future restoration and kingdom of Israel to say that this was not a physical restoration but a spiritual one that you can't understand now but one day you will is more cruel to, to a man, you know, for God to do that, then that would give hope, which is what he was trying to do. So as we approach the scripture, I think it's helpful when we're trying to, uh, you know, have the literal, historical, grammatical, understanding the genres and the literary devices used that we use today in parts of speech and figures of speech and all that. Mm-hmm. We just have to approach it in that way. What was the author understanding and what did he want us to understand is the best approach. And I want to say that because we're going to be gone the next three weeks. Okay, I appreciate that. So, well, don't worry. I'll, I'll be here next week, and then I'll be gone for a few weeks. So, we'll we'll see you when we all return. Yes.